0: Welcome to Booksmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives.
1: Whether it's self-help, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Em. And this week we're reading Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans.
0: Look around your office or home or glance down at the tablet or smartphone you may be holding. Everything in our lives was designed by someone, and every design starts with a problem that a designer or team seeks to solve. In this book, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, educators in Stanford University's design program, show us how design thinking can help us create a life that is both meaningful and fulfilling, regardless of who we are, what we do for a living, or how young or old we are. The same design thinking responsible for amazing technology, products, and spaces can be used to design and build your career and a life of fulfillment and joy, a life that is constantly creative and productive. To quote Dan Pink, designing your life walks readers through the process of building a satisfying, meaningful life by approaching the challenge the way a designer would. Experimentation, wayfinding, prototyping, constant iteration. You should read this book. So Em, why did we read this
1: book? Oh my gosh, so I love this topic. I think that I first became aware of life design around 2013. And I had been in a great job for four years, but I was realizing that I was ready to grow in ways that weren't possible at the company, but I did not know what I wanted to do next. I didn't know what I wanted to create next in my life, and I just felt really stuck. So... What do I do when I have a problem? I look for answers in books. (laughs) And over the following few years, books like this one prompted me to think about my values, what work I truly love, and how my health relationships and, oh yeah, play (laughs) fit in there as my path brought me to where I am today. And so it was really great to reread this book because it reminded me how far I have come over the past six years. And it prompted me to celebrate the ways that I have really intentionally created a life that I love. And it reminds me to think about how I want to keep life designing even when things aren't going quote unquote well. So this isn't just a process for a fork in the road or a
0: period of dissatisfaction.
1: It's a forever practice.
0: My gosh, I love that. I can't wait to hear all of your examples (laughs) as we move through the book and our entire conversation. But I stumbled upon this book as a recommendation from the New York Public Library. I wasn't really looking for a new full-time job. I feel really grateful for the job that I currently have that I love. But the title really intrigued me, Designing Your Life. It felt so intentional. And I've always felt that work was just one piece of my life, not the whole thing. Uh, But I've also struggled with the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because as a kid, I thought I would definitely have an answer by now, but I don't. I know I like where I am, and I think I'm heading in a positive direction. But I hoped that reading this book might give me a new lens to use.
1: And I look forward to hearing if it did.
0: Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
1: so let's open the book and get started. Okay, so if you are at A Fork in the Road, this book starts with some really powerful statistics to put your challenge into perspective and feel less alone. In the U.S., only 27% of college grads end up with a career in their major. That was mind-blowing to me. A second stat was in the U.S., two-thirds of workers are unhappy in their jobs, and 15% actually hate their work. That's so scary, but I've actually been there, and we'll talk more about that. And then finally, in the U.S., more than 31 million people between 44 and 70 want an encore career, and that's work that combines personal meaning, continued income, and social impact. So what do we do about these problems? Well, first, we know that designers love questions, but what they really love is reframing questions. And a reframe is when we take new information about a problem, we restate our point of view, and then we start thinking and prototyping again. So the authors of this book start with these stats to set us up to
0: reframe how we can begin thinking about these quote unquote problems. Exactly. Throughout the book, we'll talk about tons of different design thinking concepts. So reframing is such a powerful way to take one state of mind and reframe it, switch it around. So an example from one of the stats that Em just listed, dysfunctional belief would be your degree determines your career. But to reframe that, that means three quarters of all college grads don't end up working in a career related to their majors. In this case, the reframe is almost a positive spin. It reminds you that you're not the only one who isn't in a career that was determined by your degree, and in fact, maybe that's not such a bad thing. And we'll list a lot of these reframes throughout the episode. And I think that's worth pointing out that in, I think, every case, a reframe
1: is a positive reframe. Mm -hmm. It's taking a problem or something that feels stuck to us
0: and then thinking about how we can work forward with it in a way that actually helps us. Exactly. And here's one of the biggest reframes from the whole book, at least for me. The dysfunctional belief is if you are successful, you will be happy. But the reframe is that true happiness comes from designing a life that works for you. That's the whole premise of the book. We're asking the question, how do we design a life that works for us? Right. That's the path to
1: happiness that we need to figure out. How do we design it? Mm Mm-hmm. Something that initially stuck out to me here is that the idea that a well-designed life is a life that is generative and it's constantly creative, productive, changing, and evolving. And so there is always the possibility of surprise. So that idea that we're designing something moving forward is that there's not a clear path. Happiness is part of the process, but we have to figure out what makes us happy along the way. So that's the idea that it's generative. And for me, I think I have to give myself permission to lead a life like this, to grow and change because I think I get stuck on what I want it to be or think it should be. And so the idea that it's going to be creative and evolving and there's always the possibility of surprise, that was an aha moment for me that it takes a little bit of bravery, I think, to step off the well-trodden path or the path that others perceive as the right one to start doing
0: this for ourselves. I totally agree. This was actually one of my favorite highlights of the book too about a well-designed life is a life that is generative and always evolving. It's kind of a relief, honestly. I love the fact that our life is supposed to be in constant evolution. And this is directly at odds with my what do you want to be when you Mm. grow up conundrum as though life is a destination that you're supposed Mm -hmm. to identify and then arrive at. So to me, this was just such a relief, like I said, because it removes that burden of imagining life as something you're supposed to just figure out and then accomplish.
1: Right. And in fact, the authors say the reframe for the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is who or what do you want to grow into? And so that gives you an idea of like, what's the next small step towards maybe figuring out that big goal? It's not just
0: like wishing you were there and then realizing that you're not and then feeling bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. I love those reframes. And sometimes they also call them a pivot. So again, we're taking new info about the problem and restating the point of view to start thinking again. And an example that helped me crystallize how I would describe a reframe is that they said, you start out thinking you're designing a product, like a new coffee blender machine, And reframe it when you realize you're actually redesigning the entire coffee experience the way that Starbucks did for coffee. There's also something from a sales book I remember that said people don't want a vacuum, they want a clean house. Mm. But they need the vacuum to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when we're thinking about problems, we think the problem is we want a vacuum. But somehow we need to reframe it. We need to elevate it to realize that the true problem we're solving is how do I clean my home.
1: I think that reframe tools. So, so useful. And it's one of five that the authors use to frame out what it is to think like a designer. They say there are five mindsets. And the first one is curiosity. And so that's the idea that you're just getting yourself in the mindset that you're going to be creative, you're going to invite exploration and make everything play. The second is to have a bias to action. So try stuff, prototype ideas, fail, find what works, embrace change until you find a solution. Third is reframing, and that's how designers get unstuck. Fourth is awareness. So just know that this is all part of a process. Knowing that we are in the process helps us to sort of make sense of the mess and not feel like we are a mess. (laughs) We are not a mess. It's good to hear the validation. (laughs) And the fifth mindset to think like a designer is radical collaboration. Just remembering that it takes a team. It's reminding yourself to know how to ask for help, ideas, and even knowing the right questions to ask so you can collaborate well with others.
0: I think what all five of these support is what they call the biggest reframe at all, which is the reframe that your life can't be perfectly planned and that there isn't just one solution to your life. And that's a good thing. That's mind-blowing in such a great way. Right? Right. And they say, like, here's the big truth. There are many versions of you, and they are all right. Yes. I literally have in all caps, and they are all right. (laughs) Again, really challenging that notion of what do you want to be when you grow up. Life is not like this multiple choice test where your goal is to figure out which bubbles to fill in. There are so many different correct options. It's more about just choosing one that feels good, prototyping, iterating from there. Those are terms we'll use throughout the episode. But again, the goal is not to figure out which is the most right of all of them. It's just to acknowledge that many paths are valid and wonderful and that you can just choose any of them with some careful design thinking.
1: Yeah. Amen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first step to start thinking like a designer in your own life is to start where you are.
0: Thank God, since I don't know where else I would be. (laughs) I (laughs)
1: know. We're here and that's all we need to be.
0: Yeah. My biggest takeaway from this chapter is that a lot of us put emphasis on problem finding. Mm. And I think non-designers put more focus on problem solving. But what we want to do here is actually go back to the problem finding. We want to figure out what we're designing for. So the biggest first step is to figure out what's the problem. Exactly. And just realize that
1: you're not too late. You're not too early. You're right where you're supposed to be. And so figure out the right problem that you want to solve. So the first thing is to be aware of gravity problems. So these are not real problems because you can't change
0: them. And reality will always win. A good example of a gravity problem is salary expectation. You can't change the going rate for a poet or an SEO expert. It's something that's unfortunately kind of set. So if your idea of how much you want to earn in a year does not align with your desired job title, That's a gravity problem. And when you accept reality, then you're free to reframe an actual problem. Exactly. If you did want to be a poet, there could be ways for you to earn money doing that, but a reframe could also be that poetry is not the way that you have to earn money. Mm. So there are a lot of ways that you could reframe the problem to still keep poetry in your life. Mm -hmm. Something that I think is noteworthy about this section is that you'll hear us say problem finding and problem solving. Problems are not the same as issues. So an issue is something that's going wrong. A problem is just something that could be resolved or something that you're wondering about. Mm. I almost like to think of them more as curiosities. They're Mm. not just debilitating issues. It's not the same thing.
1: What a fabulous reframe.
0: (gasps) Oh, thank you, Em.
1: Curiosities.
0: (laughs) (gasps) We're doing such a good job already at being (laughs) life designers and training. (laughs) Okay, so
1: let's start where we are and let's take the life design assessment, where we're going to talk through what it looks like to take the life design assessment. The authors ask us to check in on how we're doing in four areas of life. Our health, and that's also your mind, body, and spiritual health. Our work, and this may or may not be the thing that you're getting paid for, but it is quote unquote what you do. And most people have more than one thing here. The third category is play, so that's any activity that brings you joy when you do it. And the fourth category is love. And this can be romantic, platonic, community, just in general, how is love flowing to you and from you in your life? So start by just asking yourself, how is it going in these four areas? And then gauge whether you feel like your tank is a quarter full,
0: half full, three quarters full, or really full. There were two things that stood out to me when they outlined the four areas. The first is that play gets its own zone. Yeah. Especially as adults, I don't think we think about play as often as we should. So I like that they brought that to the forefront Mm -hmm. and made me realize that my tank is – Not all the way empty. I do have some things in my life for fun, but maybe could be better. And the other is the definition of work, which is continuously defined throughout the book as just what you do, which I loved. Because I don't think we are just one career. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the work that we do at our place of work is the only way that you can contribute. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, this podcast is a form of work for us. It certainly doesn't feel like a huge effort, but it is something we're doing. Yeah. If you work for a nonprofit or just any other volunteer opportunities, that could be considered a form of work as well. Yeah. Neither of us are parents, but someday if I were to have kids, that is definitely going to go in my work category. Absolutely. And that's a great example because it fits in two categories. Being a parent probably Mm -hmm. fills up part of your work tank and part of your love tank. Mm -hmm. So it's not that everything has to only fit in one. But Mm -hmm. this exercise, I think, is a good way for you to get an understanding of probably both where your energy is going and your time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately for me, I'm similar to what you alluded to, which is that your play tank is a little bit low. Mm -hmm. And so I've actually been doing some version of this over the past, I think like since 2012, I have an Excel spreadsheet in which I measure my energy in my life and like various buckets of categories. And I looked back over six years worth of rankings. And my play, which I've also called like my vitality bucket, is consistently the lowest over the past six years. I'm still reeling about the fact that you've kept an
0: Excel spreadsheet for six years.
1: (laughs) I love it. Like I I like to track where I am and it clearly helps me know where I am. But Mm -hmm. in this practice, it has not helped me to create more player vitality. It is something that I'm really aware of. And I do think that I am doing better. And in this case, I ranked my play at about a half a tank, which is like, that's not bad. That's half full.
0: Is that higher than it's been in the past? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely been lower than that. And it's definitely been higher than that. Mm-hmm. But it sort of hovers around half full. That's so interesting to me that you've been doing this over time. I'm sure it's true for all of us that our tanks are constantly fluctuating. But this is a great starting point to life design, Because it'll help you identify maybe areas that could use a little bit of love, a little bit of a redesign.
1: Yeah. To your point, like only you know what is good enough for you. So in my case, even though half a tank sounds fine, I know that it's not good enough for me. I need Mm -hmm. more play in my
0: life. Yeah. Maybe as we continue to talk about this episode, we can help you figure out how to incorporate more play into your life.
1: I would love that.
0: (laughs) Well, next up, we have a section called building a compass. We've figured out where we're starting. It's right where we are now we got to figure out where to go.
1: And we know that the tools that we use sometimes to figure out where we are, aren't the best ones. We tend to worry, overanalyze and speculate about our lives and These sometimes just keep us spinning in circles. They're not actually helping us move forward in that job, that relationship. They keep us on the couch watching Netflix instead of doing whatever we want to do to move forward in life. And so I love that the author said, this is not designing your life. This is obsessing about your life. I can
0: relate to that. (laughs) The thing that stood out to me in this chapter was the concept of a work view compared to a life view. I had never thought to separate the two, but a work view is something that you work for. It's why you do work. What makes good work good for you? While a life view is what gives your life meaning. It's what makes your life worthwhile and valuable. It's how you relate to your family or your community in the world. And even things like what do money, fame, or personal accomplishment have to do with anything? So how important are things like growth, fulfillment, or experience in your life? Again, I had never thought to distinguish these. I had always known that work was only a piece of my life, but it had never occurred to me to sit down and ask, what do I need from work compared to what do I need from life? And there's an intersection, but sitting down and doing their suggested activity, which is writing up your work view and writing up your life view and seeing where they clash or where they complement each other was really interesting for me.
1: Yeah, I think this is a great place to start because in order to build a life, design a life that we want, we have to know what our values are and what kind of life we do want. Like, what is a good life to us? And so I, I
0: really liked starting with this to really articulate what that was for me too. Already, just by having this compass, we're in such a different place than other career books that I've read. Often they talk about starting with your skills or your interests or your passions, but starting with the compass of what do you really want out of a life or what do you want out of work seems to me like really starting at the root of things in a way I'd never considered before.
1: So Melissa, is there anything that you want to share from your work view or your life view?
0: Yes. So after doing this activity, I realized fortunately that my work view and life view were pretty complementary. I want to help others. I do strive for achievement and I like to have big goals and big dreams. And I think the difference between them is that work is how I expect to learn and contribute unique skills. I'd also like to achieve mastery on something and it's a way for me to solve long-term puzzles and problems. Mm. So I believe that I can bring people joy and meaning via like experiences. So right now I'm a manager. Mm. I think that's pretty solidly within my work view that I like to help others Mm. and solve problems and push them. In my life view though, my purpose is to connect with people and to create meaning. So you can see again how a manager, you would Mm -hmm. still be connecting with others. But in my life, I want to try new things, to love and be loved. And I think that my work has to make me feel connected because work is part of my life. Mm -hmm. I see the life view as the bigger umbrella of Mm -hmm. the two. And it's probably why if I'm just spending a full day alone, I feel kind of useless Mm -hmm. because I don't have any human connections. I'm not an extrovert. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about even just a small phone call or grabbing coffee with a friend. But I do definitely need – group activities in my life. I need Mm. to feel connected to people. And I think that they're complementary because to me success at work is maybe in the future speaking at conferences or Mm. feeling validation that I've learned a really amazing skill set and that I'm sharing it with others. So there's still that aspect of connecting and sharing. But then in my own life, a lot of the things that I value about connections with family and relationships are just a bit different. So mm-hmm. I liked separating the two, but again, was relieved to realize that they were pretty similar.
1: Yeah. How useful. And it is showing you where you want to create coherency between the two and where you want to make sure you're bringing one into the other and vice versa. That's really useful for helping you figure out what next steps you might take when you're creating the next
0: like prototype project in your life, making sure they include the, your values from both. Definitely. And the life view doesn't – contain anything about me like mastering things. It's mm-hmm. all just about connecting. Yeah. Well, again, a big component of the work view is about skill mastery, development, mm-hmm. growth, and learning. Mm-hmm. And it was really helpful for me to notice that they were different. Again, mm-hmm. very intertwined. And I think they complement each other, mm-hmm. but I do need something different from work than I need from my relationships. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating. I think that ours are probably
1: similar in terms of My work view being my skills and abilities and how I'm helping others with them. But then my life view was very similar to yours. It's about like to love and be loved and connect with others. And so I do want to more intentionally bring that connection into the work that I'm doing and really savor those experiences when I am working and have a chance to connect with a client over the phone or like it feels like it's easy to want to like have the call, get off the call, go on to the next thing. But to really, like I said, savor that experience will be important to me.
0: And hopefully this example can show people how you would use it as a compass. Mm. So for me, I would then use this work view to figure out how can I make sure that my work does feel challenging and that I have an opportunity to connect with others and all of the things that I value in the work view. And then I think other than doing this activity, a great way to wrap this chapter before we move on is the dysfunctional belief is that you should know where you're going. But the reframe is that you won't always know, but you can always know if you're heading in the right direction. So again, the compass imagery I think was really helpful Mm -hmm. here, and I would highly recommend the work view and the life view activity. It's just a journal activity, and we'll put more info in the show notes.
1: All right, next up is the idea of wayfinding. So now that we've got our compass with that true north, the goal is to use it, our work views and our life views and knowing where we're heading, to figure out our way. And we can use clues in front of us to figure out what the best way forward is and engagement and energy are our two first clues. So to notice engagement in your life as the first clue, you want to figure out when you are experiencing something, whether it's a conversation, a project that feels like you're just completely involved. Um, You might be feeling that sense of flow that we've talked about, that sense of like ecstasy or euphoria, or even just like calm inner clarity, or time is standing still. You're not even aware of time passing. The authors say that flow is play for grown-ups, and that a rewarding career involves a lot of flow states. This is something that I um, am highly aware of in the work that I do. And I try to constantly shift the projects that I work on. So they always involve more flow, which for me is anytime I'm writing
0: and anytime I'm designing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Something that I learned in a new way in this chapter was the difference between engagement and energy. So like you're saying, when you're really engaged in something and it's – you're in the work, it doesn't necessarily feel like work. You're in this state of flow. You're There's probably some element of challenge where you feel like your mind mm-hmm. is involved. But what energizes you might be different from what energizes me. So for some people, maybe going into a meeting and having a brainstorm is really energizing. Mm-hmm. It lifts you up. You love batting ideas back and forth. But for some people, although that is very engaging, it still really drains your energy and you walk out of it feeling like you just need a quick break. So separating those two, engagement and energy, was a new thought for me. That's so important to separate them that way. That's a great overview. And they do offer an activity for you to start tracking how engaged and energized you feel. It's a pretty simple exercise. As you move through your day – Write down the different tasks or activities that you're taking part of, and then you can track how energized and how engaged you feel. Two different measures. Then you get to reflect on what you've listed. And this was interesting
1: to me because I did find that there were areas where I was highly engaged, but it left me feeling a little less energized and When you reflect and figure out what those things are, you get to decide next, like, do you want to do more of this? Do you want to do less of this? How is this going to inform your next choices in designing your life?
0: So, Em, do you have any examples?
1: So one example for me is always social situations. I feel highly engaged by having intense conversations with clients about what their vision is for their new website, what their brand is, what they stand for, how we need to make that come alive. And I am absolutely in a flow state, highly, highly engaged when I'm in those conversations. But afterwards, I am beat. Like it takes energy out of me. I probably feel like a spike during the conversation energy-wise,
0: but then my barometer dips way low afterwards. I can totally relate to that with teaching. Mm. So I teach classes – And when I'm teaching for three hours or I've taught for six hours in the Mm. past, it's such a long day. But I feel highly engaged the whole time. And it is a bit energizing. I think I ended up rating it kind of in the middle Mm. because by the end, especially for a longer class, I'm totally beat. But there is this real like sense of accomplishment. And during the class, I feel useful, which really Mm. buoys me. So it does absolutely take a lot of energy. Mm. I don't think What's important to note is energy is not a measure of good or bad. Right. Necessarily, it's just how much does it take out of you. Right. Being aware of it. Mm-hmm. Doing this exercise was a huge help for me just to notice within my day-to-day, what was I spending time on and was it energizing mm-hmm. me? Even little things like I meet one-on-one with all of my direct reports and I used to put all of them on Mondays. And those are highly engaged sessions, but they take all of my energy because Mm. I'm so present. Mm. And putting them all on one day wasn't really serving anyone. Mm. So I actually recently split them up so I have two a day instead of just putting them all on Mondays.
1: That's great. Yeah. It's so useful to figure out what the patterns are so that you can start fixing them. I noticed for me that every time I listed scrolling on Instagram or any kind of social media that I was not engaged with the experience and it did not energize me, which really makes me question, like, why am I doing this? And I know we talked in episode four about Atomic Habits, how there's a real like craving and reward associated with scrolling on Instagram. But now that I have the awareness that it's not serving me well at all, I'm really trying to think critically about how
0: I can change that habit in my life. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. My biggest takeaway from this was I can't, nor do I want to eliminate all of the high energy right. activities. But as I mentioned before, I wanted to stagger them a bit. Mm. But I do think you probably want to avoid low engagement, low energy activities. Um, but that's probably not a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. The goal isn't to mm-hmm. optimize for all in one direction. Right. It's more just about awareness. Mm-hmm. The next section is about getting unstuck. The biggest takeaway I had about this section is that designers know you never go with your first idea. When you have a lot of options, you tend to choose better. And I had literally never thought about this before. I think that the dysfunctional belief that I had is that you have to come up with the right idea and then pursue the right idea. Instead, the way that they reframed it here is that you can't possibly know what the right idea is unless you come up with many ideas so that you can explore, even if for a minute, tons of different possibilities. So this was, I think, a really healthy Mm. reminder for me. I'd never considered that before I hunted for a job in the past. Maybe I should brainstorm a ton of different ideas that sounded appealing. Or I'm sure in listeners' day-to-days, there's tons of opportunities where instead of trying to find the best perfect idea – Maybe you would benefit by trying to list out 10 or even 20 ideas first. Mm -hmm. And
1: just don't even focus on the idea that there is a best one idea because, holy cow, that leads to so much pressure Mm -hmm. and then as a result, indecision. And it doesn't feel good. This was something that I – this was an aha moment for me as well because I have this practice of every year looking over my life and noting what worked and what didn't work. And every year for the past three years, I have listed in the what didn't work column this idea of – me obsessing anytime I was ready to like add a new element of work, obsessing that there was one right idea that was the one right portfolio item to add to my career to move forward. Every year I just spend so much energy thinking about this one thing when in fact I could have reframed this and thought I need a lot of ideas so that I can explore any number of possibilities for my future. And that would have freed me to start taking action on some of them rather than just Spinning my own wheels about like, should I write a book or should I start designing on a new web platform or like, what is the right idea? There is
0: no right idea. It's almost like trying to find a needle in a haystack Mm. or to be psychic about the future. You can't possibly know which one portfolio piece, to use your example, would be the right choice. But I can only imagine the pressure it must relieve if you were to think of a list. And hearkening back to earlier when we mentioned there's not only one right choice. Using your compass to say, okay, this one seems to fit the criteria, you can see how some of these concepts are starting to build on each other already. Mm -hmm. In this chapter, another concept that was a real aha for me is when they said, the truth is that all of us have more than one life in us. Yes. There is no one idea for your life. There are many lives you could live happily and productively, no matter how many years old you are, and there are lots of different paths you could take to live each of those productive, amazingly different lives. Again, it's the what do you want to be when you grow up totally debunked. Mm-hmm. There are so many ideas that you could choose. All of them are correct. And now you do have a little bit more in your arsenal. You have the compass, mm-hmm. you have the good time journal, so you know a little bit more about yourself. But even so, the goal is still not to just figure out the one magic solution. It's to identify something that fits and to acknowledge that others would have fit too, but just to commit and move forward in one direction. It's so liberating. Another tool suggested in this chapter is the
1: idea of mind mapping to just get ideas for what these potential lifetimes could be for you. And so we're probably all familiar with this idea that to mind map, you start with a concept in the middle of your page and then you just start creating layers of word associations around it. The authors recommend just spending three to five minutes on that because that forces you to think quickly and creatively and broadly um, and not get too stuck in making connections between
0: the center idea you have and the extensions that it grows. Exactly. The whole point of this exercise is to do it without judgment. So now that we've been freed of finding the perfect idea, just spend those three to five minutes writing down everything you possibly can without judgment. I tried to think of some things that were more absurd to see if then if you reel it back, Mm. then it becomes something that's a little more possible. Mm. If you haven't tried any mind mapping before, I would highly recommend it. It's a really great way to just get out of your head quite literally and onto a page. Another concept that was introduced in this chapter, getting unstuck, is the
1: idea of anchor problems. And these are problems that hold us in place and prevent motion because we're only anchored to one solution that we're willing to accept. It's that idea that there's only one right answer, only one right idea. And I really found myself stuck with an anchor problem, which I mentioned in the intro when I was ready to leave this great job I had after four years. I now know that I was ready to leave it, but in the past, I didn't want to leave that job. I truly loved the company and I loved what I did. And so I just thought, I just need to get more engaged. I just need to stay here at this company and solve a different problem. But in fact, that was the anchor when it was it was really time for me to leave and learn and grow elsewhere. So to deal with an anchor problem, we use some of those principles of design thinking, which is first to reframe the goal and reimagine a new solution. So eventually after honestly, about a year or more of agonizing, frankly, over what I should do and being frustrated that I wasn't more engaged. I realized like, what if I could still work here, but just as an independent contractor so I could take on other clients and projects that would enable the growth that I really wanted in the next phase of my career. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to that reframe, it felt like the world opened to me. And that points at something that's really important to know if you're experiencing an anger problem, which is that we really are afraid that if we try something, it won't work and we'll be permanently stuck. And so,
0: we feel like we're kind of screwed. I know exactly what you mean because often our choices feel permanent. I think that's maybe something all of us could stand to reframe. Mm. So the dysfunctional belief is that every choice I make is permanent. I am stuck. I am drowning. But the reframe is that. You can always make a different choice later. Absolutely.
1: It would have been so freeing to realize that at that point in my life. But instead, I just came home from work in that final year and moaned to my brother a lot. Like, I'm so afraid. What if I'm unable to be happy at any job? Like I took this one job and made it my entire life. And I just kept myself really afraid and
0: really stuck. And I'm sure listeners have felt that way too about different things, whether it was a job, maybe even a relationship Mm -hmm. that you might have anchored yourself to. Mm I think this is a very relatable feeling. Mm -hmm. And so a way to move forward past that fear, past our
1: delight in the comfortable and the familiar is to start designing small prototypes to test the water. And so that's eventually what I did. Once I reframed the problem and realized that I could probably still keep that company as a client – I did quit that job and I did keep them as a client, but it was only when I had a new agreement with a new client for whom I was going to dedicate a large chunk of my time every week. So I felt like I had a sort of a safety net to fall on. I didn't just have zero clients and I wasn't just going out with nothing to do starting completely from scratch. I had two clients. Um, Both of whom were sort of covering my
0: nuts and bolts of what I needed to do financially and in terms of my stability. What I love about this too, to refer back to the Good Time Journal, is that you probably realized that there were tasks involved and the projects that you were doing were things that you enjoyed and felt energized by. But something about the full-time employment at that specific company was not matching your compass exactly. That is exactly what happened. And in fact, it's what kept happening as
1: I continued that prototype. I realized that some of the things I was then doing for this new client weren't quite in my wheelhouse. And so she and I had several conversations over the course of that next year over what it would look like for me to design a role that really worked within her team.
0: I love that. I think that's such a powerful example because most people assume that if a job isn't working, you leave or Mm -hmm. you have to change everything about it. But what I love that you did is you identified the parts that were still working Mm -hmm. for you and then you figured out how to design around it. Mm -hmm. It's that concept that you fail fast and you fail
1: forward. And frankly, they don't even really feel like failures when you're realizing that you're just tweaking things. You're just
0: gaining intel and then you're figuring out what to do with that as you move forward. You also use the word prototyping. Mm -hmm. That's a big product term, design thinking term. That's where you create a version of something, probably an earlier version. And then you test it out. In time, it's almost guaranteed that the prototype will evolve. Mm -hmm. You will iterate on it or you'll change little things. You use the word tweak. You'll tweak Mm -hmm. it over time. That's not something I had ever applied to my work either, this concept of prototyping. But I think it's so smart to put your foot in the water a little bit before you dive in headfirst. Yeah,
1: it is something that I struggled with, though, because it feels a little bit uncomfortable to keep making changes, but that's exactly what I did over the next three and a half years. So here I am today, and I'm really, really happy with the portfolio of clients that I have and the work that I'm doing. And I'm sure I'm going to keep changing and evolving, but that's the name of the game, and it feels really good when I know what
0: I want to move forward to. And it all started from the prototype of the first client, and even you mentioned waiting for the second client Mm -hmm. to sign on as well. And I'm sure everything about your process has been tweaked a little bit. The way that you Mm -hmm. work with clients or find clients, I can only imagine it's been a very iterative process. Yes, to say the least. (laughs) Emma's like giving me how she's like, it's so different. (laughs) I have seen things. (laughs) I
1: have seen things.
0: Mostly good things. (laughs) Mostly good things. But again, this also reminds us that life is generative. It's that highlight Mm -hmm. we loved so much from the beginning of the book. You're constantly learning, finding new creative ways to do things, and that that is the point. There is not one perfect final outcome where you will have arrived at a finish line. It's just Mm -hmm. constantly generative and evolving.
1: Next up, we want to put all these concepts together in how we design our lives. But first, a quick
0: break. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart to get started today.
1: Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers.
0: Of course, we recommend you use your free book to check out Designing Your Life, but you could choose any book you like. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash booksmart for your free audiobook. Now it's time for us to take all of our product terms and design thinking approaches to design our lives. In the book, they say that working with adults of all ages, they've found that where people go wrong, regardless of age, education, or career path, is thinking they just need to come up with a plan for their lives and it'll all be smooth sailing. Only if they make the right choice, the best, true, only, superpowered mega-awesome choice, they will have a blueprint for who they will be, what they will do, and how they will live, Into infinity and beyond, basically. (laughs) And we've already debunked that dysfunctional belief. But the dysfunctional belief is I need to figure out my best possible life, make a plan, and then execute it. But we are here to reframe it and say that there are multiple great lives and plans within each one of us. And you get to choose which one you use to build your way forward to next.
1: Thank goodness. Thank goodness indeed. There is no right choice. We will live many lives I loved that idea and this was a huge aha moment for me. Um, the authors talk about how most people's lives are actually a series of two to four year seasons strung together. This is mind blowing. I thought that once I was on the path, it would unfold into a logical, clear life that just looked straightforward and obvious. And because I find myself like iterating and starting a business and leaving a job, I thought that there was something wrong with me, <laughs> that I was broken, that I kept wanting to change what I was doing every three or four years, and this is a really comforting to know it's not just me. I'm not perpetually doomed to reinvent myself. And in fact, that is the beauty of this, is that I get to keep iterating and I get to keep reinventing myself.
0: And that is a life well lived. I love this. I think it's so important to say that learning or changing is not failure. Yeah. It's iterating. Like you said in your examples earlier in this episode. You had to prototype. You had to Mm -hmm. keep learning. You didn't have it all figured out. None of us did. But this was such an aha for me too, this concept of seasons, that Mm -hmm. every two to four years, maybe you evolve. And it's not, again, that you have to throw out everything you've done before, but that you might shift or find a new way to express your work view, your life view, or the things that you enjoy and feel energized by.
1: Okay. So what if we do want to build a way forward? We're in a stuck spot or we're ready to shift some things how do we figure out which of our many next lives we might live yet? And a tool in the book is Odyssey Planning 101. And this is the idea that we get to like invent three different alternate versions of ourselves for the next five years. And they suggest three specific alternate versions. First is the thing you do. So really chart out what that's going to look like over the next five years. And second. The thing you'd do if the thing you do were suddenly gone. So uh, if your plan for thing one disappears, what have you always wanted to do? Like what's been your backup plan or your secret plan for what you would do if you couldn't do what you're doing now? And number three is the thing you'd do or the life you'd lead if money or image were no object.
0: This one is where things can get a little crazy, which (laughs) I loved. (laughs) I really liked this suggestion because so often – We even hear people talk about, like, what's your five-year plan? No one ever Mm. says, what are your options for a five-year plan or what alternatives have you explored? Mm. And taking the time to do this Odyssey planning exercise will take maybe an hour or two, depending on how in-depth you want to go, but certainly longer than five years in total. Mm -hmm. So you have the opportunity to really chart out what could the five years look like for you in the span of, you know, a day or one sitting. Mm. And I thought this was really – New information. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious as we read through all these books. Like, oh, yeah, that'd be nice to explore (laughs) alternatives. But for me, I did this exercise. I mapped out the road of what I'm currently doing, something I might do if I couldn't do my current thing anymore, and then like a totally out there idea. Mm -hmm. And in the process, I realized that I actually really like the path that I'm on. No surprise, I realized the thing I'd do if money was no object was totally useless. Like I was like, what if I opened a coffee shop? What if I had a community component? What if there was a book club? Oh my God. And then it just spiraled and I realized via a lot of internet searching how expensive coffee shops are, how not profitable they were. And even going back to my good time journal, I spent some time outlining the tasks that I would have to do if I was running a coffee shop. And I realized a lot of the food and beverage parts are of no interest to me. It was really just the concept of having a community that met at a coffee shop Mm. that interested me. And then as an aside from this book, but still a learning, I thought, well, if I really wanted this, why not just ask my local coffee shop if I could host a monthly book club? Mm. Like I really talked myself off a ledge Mm. here. Or at some point, maybe we'll have meetups for Booksmart. Right. Oh my God. I can't (laughs) wait to reference this episode in the future. (laughs) How about you, Em? Did you take anything from
1: this activity? So I did not do it as intensely as you did. So for example, I did not research what it would take to open the winery in New Zealand that is in my <laughs> life plan three. Oh my God. You dreamed so big and I love it. Was it. Coming with me. <laughs> and I, I think it's because I didn't have to. I know that I don't want to read about soil science. Mm-hmm. I know that I don't want to till the fields. <laughs> Um I think what that life plan really is about is kind of similar to you it's about community it's about being outdoors more um it's about creating something big that for me wine is about like curling up with a book or talking with friends it's about like the experience of living our lives with others and so that for me is like the dreamy aspect of that alternative life plan and happily I realized that My vision for the next five years of what I'm doing now is the life I really want to lead. Like it felt so affirming to map that out. And of course, you can't know certain things that are going to happen, but it was felt so good to see that I want to be doing the things I'm doing now. I want to be building to the things that I want to accomplish. I want to learn those skills. I want to meet those people. I want to have those conversations. I like it just so affirming.
0: Yeah. In the way that I agree with you. The five year plan of where I'm currently headed mm-hmm. was very affirming. It was also a relief to map out alternatives that mm-hmm. I had been playing in the back of my mind yeah. and realize I didn't actually want them. Yeah. So I loved this exercise. I had never really done a five year plan before. The timeline of it seemed too much for me at the time. Mm-hmm. But in the way that they suggest, which we'll include in the show notes at booksmartpodcast.com slash five, you can really see that it is attainable to just think really big about major things each year. It's not that you're planning out every single thing you're going to do on every single day, but I really liked visualizing the lives that I could be leading. Yeah. And to the point in design thinking, it was fun to think about multiple options and realize there were a lot of good choices. Yeah, right. To your point, like...
1: Just because you and I happen to find in this exercise that the thing we're doing now is the thing we want to keep doing, it doesn't mean that um, option two or three are wrong. If you do this exercise and you find out that the thing you considered your backup plan is actually what you want to keep doing or crazy life idea number three is actually more attainable to you than you thought it was, um, those will be huge, huge breakthroughs.
0: My last thought on this is that I mentioned I'm on a path that feels good to me, but I actually have two five-year options that start where I am. Ooh, So, the great news is that using the compass and the life view and the work view, I know that I'm on a good path. Mm. But I, I now feel more okay acknowledging that it could go a couple different ways instead of assuming I'm locked into one five year option.
1: Mm. And now we can start prototyping.
0: Yes, which is a perfect segue. Prototype (laughs) those options. (laughs) Yes. So we mentioned prototyping before, which is the next section in the book. And because we don't have reliable data for the future, obviously we are not psychic. So what we want to do instead is prototype. We want to ask good questions, test, iterate. We want to out our hidden biases and assumptions and create momentum to fail fast and forward.
1: I think a big part of this is that try and fail. Like It is okay. That is the name of the game. That is what designers do as part of the process. So again, it goes back to that mindset of being a designer is the awareness that you're in this as a process. If you fail in this case, it's not that you fail at life. It's that you discovered a failure in this prototype and it now enables you to create a better one going forward.
0: What I love about prototyping too, there's a product term called the MVP, the minimum viable Mm, product. So to me, I see prototyping as what's the smallest version of the thing I'm thinking about that'll give me a taste of this career Mm -hmm. or this work? And that's why the activity suggested in this chapter is to interview someone who has the job you dream about to learn more about the in and outs. And to be clear, this life design interview is not a job interview. You are not asking for anything other than knowledge. But to think again with the prototyping mentality, they have the job that you think you might want So they can give you a ton of insight without you having to go out and try it yourself. I loved
1: this concept and I wish that I had done this to prepare more and feel more brave before quitting my job. If I had interviewed other freelancers or small business owners, I think I would have been more prepared for what I would eventually have to tweak and change when I did quit my job and when I learned certain things worked or didn't work for me. But it also would have made me feel so much more comfortable with what that great beyond looked like. And I think I would have taken those next steps a lot sooner.
0: Yeah. It's so tough to know what you don't know. Mm. Obvious as it sounds, but by interviewing somebody in the shoes you hope to fill, you can start to get a clearer, more accurate picture of the life you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And then a next step to that, of
1: course, is a prototype experience. So you can watch others if somebody will let you shadow them perhaps, or you can just start doing it yourself. Like if I wanted to start my own business as a writer and a web designer, prior to quitting my job, I could have just taken on a couple small clients prior to doing that. Instead, I did it all as one big leap. But again, I think that would have made me feel a
0: lot more comfortable taking those steps and eventually making the big decision to quit my job. Yes. What a great example too of What is the smallest amount of work you could take on on the side to test it out? Mm -hmm. If you think you want to be a web developer, see if you can build a friend's website. If you want to quit your job to write poetry, are you sure you even enjoy writing poems? Like have you maybe gone to a poetry slam? I'm making all this up. But I'm sure you could find a small version to try without exiting your entire life as it is right now.
1: Yeah. And again, it's the idea of awareness. Like as you were just saying that, I realized – so I did – run prototypes, but I didn't think of them that way. So I had built websites on Squarespace, but I didn't think of them as me testing out my future career. I just thought of it as play. And then I still was obsessing about what my next best career was going to be. So I disconnected myself from the like research I was doing by creating those prototypes. And
0: had I recognized what I was doing, I would have been able again to take that step sooner. That's so interesting. And it makes me wonder, Maybe listeners are already prototyping certain things. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are certain projects at work that you love more than anything else and you notice you're actually putting more time into. Or maybe you have a side project and you are spending a lot of time blogging or for us we're podcasting. Mm -hmm. We make literally zero – negative dollars. (laughs) dollars negative dollars doing this. But we're really enjoying the process of learning what it takes to put together a great Mm -hmm. podcast. And you can take those as cues. So you don't have to name it a prototype, but anything where you're just iterating over time and you're testing little Mm -hmm. things before jumping all in, Mm -hmm. that's a prototype. Yeah.
1: And you might also look at those things on your Good Times journal for what are the things that you feel that spike of engagement or that spike of energy. Those may be things that you're
0: unconsciously prototyping. Exactly. Now, we mentioned these interviews, these life design interviews. And moving ahead into how to actually get a job out of all of this, There's a big misconception that the job that you want is readily available for you to Google search and find and apply and get it. A big part of designing your dream job is that often the job that you want isn't posted. It doesn't exist. So the next step beyond doing life design interviews is to just continue learning more and you will naturally find out that there could be some opportunities that you hadn't heard about. People this might shock you, want to help. <laughs> I know for and I, this was a big reframe, but networking is such like a term. It's yeah. so icky, but people sincerely want to help. So you can reframe networking and remind yourself that if somebody has become successful, very likely that they want to pay it forward and help you out as well.
1: Yeah. I love that they said networking is just asking for directions. Mm. That was the reframe for me that was like, I love networking then. It turns out that I do because I love having conversations with people about what they do and what they enjoy and what they don't enjoy. And if I could apply that to, say, like the next step of my
0: life that I'm designing, I'm going to have so much fun doing that. I love that too. And he says the point isn't to do networking. (laughs) The goal is just to participate. Hmm. In other words, you're just being an active member. You're gathering information. You're learning more eventually people will gather information from you as well. Mm-hmm. But I think we often assume networking has an end goal. Yeah, That's what makes the life design interviews so different. You mm-hmm. are not aiming for a job. You really are just aiming to learn. Mm-hmm. So what is this all leading
1: toward? Happiness. We probably all have one big goal in life, right? And that's happiness. And in life design, being happy means that you choose happiness. Um, and this was a new concept for me because – I think that we often think about happiness as the goal, and I know there are expressions like, it's about the ride, not the destination, (laughs) but uh, it's hard to put that in practice. (laughs) And so this is where I started to really think about how we're incorporating
0: this choice to choose happiness in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. They say that the secret to happiness in life design isn't making the right choice. It's learning to choose well. That's really what all of these different concepts have led up to. We want to feel confident that we've explored options. We've Mm -hmm. come up with a lot of ideas. We've done some prototyping. We've done some journaling and some exploration. But even after all of that, there isn't a single answer. There could have been many options. And after that thoughtful consideration, hopefully it'll cut down on you wondering what if or should I have pursued something else because you would have been pretty thorough and you would have tested and done your life design interviews But ultimately, you want to choose something and then, to quote Frozen, let it go. (laughs) (laughs) And thankfully, we're
1: not just like leaving you now here to choose and good luck. Like there is a life design choosing process. Amen. And it's four steps. And the first step is gather and create options. And that's what this book is about, right? Just exploring all of those ideas that we might have. Step number two is narrowing down your list. So at this point, you might have a whole list. You might need to spend a couple more weeks or months adding to your list to get a bunch of ideas that you are really interested in considering. But it's important to realize that we as humans cannot deal with too many options. And the key here is that we want to then narrow our list down to three to five choices. The authors found that that is the ideal number To give us good options to choose between. We don't want to have so many that it feels like our list is overpowering and we we can't find a way to narrow it down. So if you need help narrowing down your list, you can try sorting all the items into categories and then choosing the top contenders in each category. Or you can force yourself to narrow your list by just crossing items off and If you find yourself crossing off an item that's the wrong one, you probably will have a funny little gut reaction um, and you'll realize that you crossed off the wrong item. And so that's information, too, that you should take from yourself, that you can trust yourself and you can sort of listen to your gut reaction to what you're narrowing off your list. One more note on narrowing down your list is that if you can't determine your preferences from among your three to five options, you win. That's the outcome you want, right? Because you have a can't lose situation on your hands here. So when it comes to choosing, like you're already ahead of the game. You have fabulous options to choose from. Step three in the choosing process is to choose discerningly. I alluded to this a little bit because we have to use our gut here. We have to use our heart, um, not just our brains to figure out what's really the right choice for us. And the authors talk about how to sort of practice accessing this wisdom center in our brains by doing things like meditating or journaling or um, even just pretending to live option A for a whole day, just going about your daily life thinking, I have chosen that in the future, I'm going to become an interior designer. Here's me living
0: that life. I actually loved this suggestion. The concept of commit to option A Mm -hmm. and then just live in it for a little while. Mm -hmm. I think too often in my past decision-making, I would choose one and then decide to go for it. Mm -hmm. But instead, if you just kind of let it stew for a couple of days, Mm -hmm. kind of like if you want to make an impulse purchase, maybe you wait Mm -hmm. a day to see if you still want it. That's what this reminded me of. It's like the try before you buy concept.
1: Mm -hmm. Perfect. I love that. Another way of doing this is – to draw two circles on your floor or, you know, imagine two circles. Not literally on the floor.
0: (laughs) 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 You have a security deposit to get back. (laughs) So
1: if you're going to access your wisdom center, like your gut and your heart to help you figure out like which really is the choice that feels best for you, assign a life to these circles on the floor and then go step in one and then just feel what it feels like to be in that choice. This is like a fairly woo recommendation, (laughs) but I've done this and it's really interesting how placing yourself on the floor in an option, like you will have a funny gut reaction to whether it feels right or not.
0: Hmm. I've never tried that, but I think you're so right that physically doing something Mm -hmm. often makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. The act of physically stepping into something Mm -hmm. versus just mentally imagining Mm -hmm. it is so different. So I think that's a great option for listeners.
1: We have to take ourselves out of our brains.
0: Mm -hmm. And sometimes the actual movement Mm -hmm. can really help.
1: Yeah. So the fourth step in our choosing process is to agonize over our (laughs) decision. Just kidding. That's what you don't do. Uh, That's what you don't do. (laughs) It is to, as Melissa said, let it go. Let go of the unnecessary options and then just move on embracing your choice fully so that you can
0: get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. They have the dysfunctional belief that happiness is having it all, but the reframe is that happiness is letting go of what you don't need. And I love this quote. They said, the problem with letting go is that it's more of an inaction than an action, and your brain hates that. So the key to letting go is to move on and to grab on to something else. So instead of just letting go and like stewing in it, mm-hmm. instead grab on to something, put your attention somewhere else, take an action. Right.
1: Agonizing like drains our satisfaction with the choices that we've made and it distracts us from getting energetically ahead on the choices that we did make. So we're just holding ourselves back. Exactly.
0: Agonizing is the action you take when you didn't choose another one. Mm -hmm. So make sure you have something you can do so that your brain doesn't latch on to the what ifs and the stewing and the, ah, my life. Yeah. They said, make the best choice that you can,
1: given the time and resources available to you, and then get on with it and build your way forward.
0: Exactly. Another final concept is about failure immunity. So in life, Failure is inevitable, but unfortunately, a lot of us are taught that failure is bad. Mm. But when you take this approach to life design, you are inevitably going to experience failure. And in fact, failure is a great opportunity to learn. So a dysfunctional belief is that we judge our life by the outcome, but truly the reframe is that life is a process, not an outcome. And every time you fail, it's really just learning something new about what you like or what you don't.
1: Right. We're always growing and changing. That's part of the process. And- when you reframe failure and think about it as prototyping or just gaining new knowledge to help you figure out how to move forward, honestly, failure becomes kind of fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Failure is just the raw material of success. Mm. That's how they frame it in the book. We all screw up. We all have weaknesses and growing pains. But I'm sure everyone listening can imagine one story that seemed like a failure at the time, but you've truly learned and grown from that. And without it, you wouldn't have the knowledge that you do today. Absolutely. I love the next
1: exercise, which helps us to remember those times in our lives where we may have failed, but we can start to reframe how we are thinking about them. So, the failure reframe exercise is first to just log your failures. And I would recommend not getting too intense with this list, like, don't dredge the darkest times of your life, but (laughs) like be kind, right? Be kind to yourself. And then two, to categorize them. And there are three categories that you can put your failures in. The first are screw ups. And these are just simple mistakes that you'd normally get right, like typos on important emails, where you wish it didn't happen, but it did. And it's time to move on. So the best way to handle a screw up is to
0: apologize if needed, but basically just to move on from them. Mm-hmm. The next one is weaknesses. So these happen because of some failings that you have. It's probably a mistake that you made over and over. You probably already tried to correct it and you've improved as far as you think you're going to. And honestly, some failures or weaknesses are just part of your makeup. And the best strategy is avoidance of the situations that prompt them instead of just continually spinning your wheels and trying to improve. The third category of failure are growth opportunities.
1: And so these are failures that didn't have to happen in our lives or at least don't have to happen again, but there is huge opportunity to look at
0: these and figure out what they have taught us. The thing that I loved about this exercise using the categories is that it acknowledges that failure takes different forms. Mm. You shouldn't spend time agonizing over the screw-ups because there's nothing to be done. Right. You always get it right. Life happens. Just Mm -hmm. apologize and move forward. But instead, if you focus on the growth opportunities, your energy is actually going to go somewhere productive. So I thought that this was a really helpful reframe in itself to just acknowledge that failure comes in different forms. I loved that too. It takes some of the weight off of those failures in our past that we can
1: put them to work for us. Um, We can learn from them what we need to, and we can figure out what we would do differently next time. And then we can go forward having sort of shed some of the baggage of of those problems too.
0: Mm-hmm. And there are also some things that we don't have to beat ourselves up about. Yeah, So it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Another concluding concept is about building a team. So the dysfunctional belief is that it's my life. I have to do it myself. But the reframe is that you live and design your life in collaboration with others. And in other words, it's a communal effect. So if you're working with others and sharing resources, it's going to – compound, and all of you will work better together and enjoy life more.
1: Right. And these people, our team, these could be our partners, our bosses, our community members, our clients, our kids, our neighbors. Basically, people are in every one of our prototypes as collaborators,
0: participants, and informers. And in fact, to really formalize this, an activity that they suggest is creating a life design team. So this is a list of three to five people who are your supporters, your mentors, people who will really actively be interested in designing a life with you and who would regularly meet up. So I think for most of us, like me personally, my takeaway here is just to share in my life and my thoughts with other people. But if you did want to create a more formal team or to even have a few people who all want to read this book together, that's something that you could try as well. All right. So to wrap all of this up,
1: let's think about Our life pie. We have slices for health, for work, for love, and for play. And we get to decide every day what's important to us and what's a key component of the life we want to build. There is no perfect pie. Our pies change every day.
0: And throughout the book, we introduce the idea of life design by using five simple things first, be curious. Second, try stuff, have a bias to action. Third, reframe problems. Four, know that it's a process and have awareness about it. And five, ask for help. So using these five mindsets, you have
1: the tools you need to start designing a life you love. And you also have a compass, right? You have that work view and your life view that are guiding you towards your true north. And you also have a way to keep practicing with those prototypes, checking in on what you're building toward, whether you like it, testing and failing and trying again. And with all of these tools, We have the ability to design a life that works for us, that we love, and leads us toward choosing happiness every step of the way. Before we share our bookmarked activity,
0: Melissa, how will you carry this book with you into the future? I know we talked about this already, but the work view and life view exercise was really life-changing for me. Like Not to be dramatic, but (laughs) I had really never thought to separate them before. And I think using those views as a compass is something I'm excited to continue to refer back to and iterate on Mm. over time. I also really love the product design concept of iteration and idea generation, Mm. but I'd never thought to apply it to my own life. So the suggestion to always come up with tons of ideas instead of trying to produce a perfect singular Mm. idea on the first run is something I want to carry with me both into future career decisions and really into any life decisions. Awesome. How about you, Em? So the idea of
1: prototyping really stuck with me. Implementing that bias to action mindset around actually testing out ideas for my life design. And it serves me so well by freeing me from obsessing mm-hmm. and helping me take action when I'm stuck. So we mentioned in the beginning of the episode that of my tanks for health, work, play and love, my play tank was middling to empty. So I do play. I do have fun. I love spending time with friends, making art. I'm currently spending a lot of time antiquing for a bookshelf that I'm on the hunt for, which is such a fun pastime. But something still feels missing to me in this tank, which is why it's like halfway or almost dry, (laughs) depending on the day. Um, (laughs) And the reason I think I'm not embracing play in my life is because I'm drawn to things that feel big and unattainable to me right now. So for example, I keep thinking that I would love to learn to play the drums or to dance the tango. So cool. But you just don't know how to do either of these things overnight. So to start with, I'm going to prototype one of these ideas, and I'm not sure which yet, by taking just one drumming lesson or one tango lesson. And I'm going to see if I like it, if I want to keep doing it, or if I want to try prototyping something else. So, if you want to be on my life design team, Melissa, and you listeners, you can hold
0: me accountable and I'll report back. I love that. I can't wait to hear how your first lesson goes. Me too. What I love about this too is like you're not going out and buying an entire drum kit, which is super expensive, but the idea of just taking one class or one Tangle lesson is really attainable and it'll give you a good taste of if you want to continue.
1: Now that I've narrowed it down to just one class, I'm really excited to just try. Yes,
0: so exciting. Yay!
1: There are so many great activities listed throughout this book, and you can download worksheets and learn more in the show notes at booksmartpodcast.com slash
0: five. That's the number five. In the meantime, here are two of our favorite activities. First up, try creating a health, work, play, love dashboard. Imagine each category as a tank and reflect on how full your life feels in each category. This helps you figure out where you're starting from in your life design process. The second
1: bookmarked activity we'd recommend is the Good Time Journal. Simply list out activities and tasks you do throughout the day, and for each one, mark how energized it makes you feel and how engaged you feel while doing it, and if you experience a state of flow. These are important clues for discovering activities you might
0: want to build on as you design a life you love. Thanks for joining us this week. To view the complete show notes and learn more about designing your life, visit booksmartpodcast.com slash five. We've also included our top takeaways and the bookmarked activities for easy reference. Once you've read the book, we'd love to hear about it. Tell us if you've tried the
1: dashboard or the journal, or if you had any aha moments by emailing us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 929-515-BOOK. That's 929-515-BOOK
0: or 2665. Lastly, we do have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you did, we hope you'll leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Reviews let Apple know that great listeners like you enjoy our show, and that helps us expand our reach in search results. Thanks again for joining us on
1: this week's episode of Booksmart. Until next time, happy reading.